Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're discussing the paper, Muscle Volume Alterations in Spastic Muscles, Immediately Following Botulinum Toxin Type A Treatment in Children with Cerebral Palsy, which is by Sean Williams, Siobhan Reed, Catherine Elliott, Peter Shipman, and Jane Valentine. It's due to be published in the September issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Williams of the School of Sports Science, Exercise and Health, University of Western Australia, Perth, Australia, who's one of the authors, and Professor Kerr Graham, Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the Royal Children's Hospital, Parkville, Victoria, Australia, who's also co-authored a commentary on the article. Please can we start with you, Dr. Williams, to outline the paper and its background. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to discuss this paper. Relatively little is known about spastic muscles and even less is understood about the effects of therapeutic treatments on spastic muscles. We do know that children with CP have weaker muscles than their typically developing peers and research is also showing that these children also have smaller muscles as well. Botox, we know, is an established treatment option for children with cerebral palsy and it's been in use for over a decade and we have international consensus for its use with a clinically good response and high safety profiles. But what is really of concern to us is that the research in animal models and healthy adult muscles that has coming out has shown that there's quite a significant decrease in muscle size following injections with Botox. So for a population of children who were already predisposed to muscle weakness and who are also likely to have smaller muscles than their typically developing peers, we're really interested in how these muscles are responding to treatment with Botox. So we looked at 15 children with spastic diaplegic cerebral palsy. They were CMSGS level 1 and 2, and they were recruited by the Spastic Management Services at Princess Margaret Hospital in Perth, Western Australia. They were aged 5 to 11 years, and they'd all received a minimum of two series of Botox prior to the study. They completed two assessments. So the first one was just about two weeks before their Botox injection, and the second one was scheduled for around four weeks after their Botox injection. And this time point was selected to assess the children when the Botox was taking peak effect. At the assessments, we measured muscle volume and muscle strength and functional ability. Muscle volume was determined using MRI scans that we were very fortunate to be able to use. We then digitised these scans with Mimic software and this gave us a 3D volume of each segmented muscle. Muscle strength of the knee flexors and extensors were completed with a biodex dynamometer and a handheld dynamometer determined the maximal isometric strength of the plantar flexors and the dorsiflexors. And we also included a six-minute walk test and timed up and go. Now, what we did was we initially looked at the total muscle volume of the plantar flexors, but then what we found was no actual change in the total muscle volume. We then looked further and found that there was actually almost a 4.5% decrease in the muscle volume of the injected gas drops. But also what we found what was really interesting was some hypertrophy in the synergist muscle, the soleus, with almost an increase of 4%. So this actually seemed to have actually compensated for the atrophy in the gastrocnemius. And it's also important to note here that this also did not negatively alter the function and there was no change in muscle strength. Well, Dr. Williams, uh, thank you for that excellent summary. It's uh, Professor Graham here. As you know, I've been working with this toxin in children with cerebral palsy for many years, and like you, I've been very concerned about the recent animal work and 
therefore was absolutely fascinated by your paper. My congratulations to you and your team. I think this is a very innovative approach to combine people from sports science, pediatrics, imaging, and pediatric rehabilitation. It's probably not many centers that could put this team together, and I think that the expertise that each of your co-authors has brought has really led to some very interesting and really quite novel findings. So I think you are to be congratulated for moving the field forward in an interesting direction. And of course, I've got some questions and um, I'd be interested to hear your comments. I think to be able to look at muscles at intervals in children, especially in anatomical detail and then in volumes, is really a great step forward. Can you tell us a little bit more about the protocol for getting cooperation of younger children with cerebral palsy in the noisy and confronting environment of the MRI scanner? I mean, as you just said, MRI scans was really a valuable measurement tool for us to be able to include. But also we know that there's high anxiety-related associations with MRI scans that people of all ages can experience, especially children. So we referred to research that actually told us factors like the sound, the unfamiliar environment, the new faces, obviously the equipment, but also associations that can be made with getting a scan to possibly show that something is wrong with the child. So things like this, we were already aware that this might make the child a little bit more anxious and we also wanted to reduce any risk of movement artifacts in our scans. Well, first of all, I wanted to point out that we used T1 axial and coronal scans for the full leg and these were non-diagnostic scans. So this is only a single sequence collection. Obviously, a diagnostic scan would be much longer. So we tried to reduce the amount of scan time as much as we could without compromising any of the quality of what we were getting. Second of all, and our main point was that we developed MRI practice therapy. We made resources such as a storybook. This told the story of how Teddy went to the MRI and included pictures of the hospital, hallways, the waiting area, the doors literally everything that I could take a picture of that was relating to them getting an MRI scan, we took pictures of and, and included it within this storybook. And it also had very specific information. So we also made sure that we scheduled their strength assessments before the MRI scans. And this was really important because it allowed us a chance to chat to them, really confirm that they knew what was going to be happening on the day of the MRI scan. We did a lot of play therapy so that they were comfortable with us. We also read through the storybook, but we also made a little DVD where we had other children who had already gone through the scans themselves, and we had them actually explaining what's going to happen and handy little tips about lying still. And this also included the really loud sound of the MRI, so they were really prepared about what they were going to do, what they were going to see and hear. Um, we sat each child down and explained everything to them. We played games with magnets, so they knew magnets weren't dangerous. We also filled out activity sheets. I understand that not everyone has the opportunity to spend that amount of time with children prior to MRI scans, but this was really important for us. We made sure that they were really comfortable to ask any questions they had, and they also that their parents understood everything as well, so that if they, for some reason, weren't comfortable asking us any questions, they could ask their parents a question. 
We also then sent home personalised storybooks as well with their pictures and what teddy they were allowed to bring and what kind of DVDs they were allowed to watch during the scan. So they well and surely knew what they were going to do on the day of the scan. And a lot of the children were actually really looking forward to it. Um, it was quite funny. We would actually get a few children asking, oh, when, when can we have our MRI scan? And we're like, oh, not yet. You just had one. <laughs> you know, it was really, really surprising the positive response we got. That's excellent. I suspect that uh, other investigators may well be interested in those very practical details and you may well have follow-up inquiries after the publication of your paper. I guess the other issue I'm really interested in, in in the MRI scans is the use of the MIMIC software and as to which muscles are easier or more difficult or are there differences in the reliability of working out volumes of muscles according to the specific muscle morphology? I was actually quite fortunate to be able to get a lot of practice that doing this digitizing with typically developing muscles. So this gave us a lot of practice at seeing muscles and being able to determine their boundaries. Of course, when we went to these, using the scans of children with cerebral palsy, their muscles were quite a shock when we first started looking at them. Yeah. They were a lot smaller and they were... There were more differences in colours that we needed to really work out what were the boundaries here that we were looking at. So we digitised the hamstring muscles, the biceps femoris, the semitendinosus and the semimembranosus. We also, in the quadriceps, we looked at the vastus lateralis, vastus medialis and the rect femoris. Yep. And with that, we could, they were the three muscles that we needed to just choose because the vastus intermedius, we just couldn't see it was very blurry, it was really hard to determine the boundaries there. So that is a limitation of what, what we were looking at there. Um, also, with the medial gastrocs, we looked at the medial and lateral gastrocnemius and also the soleus muscle as well, and we also were able to digitise the tibat. But there were some muscles in there that we left alone purely because the, the boundaries were just too difficult and we did not want to compromise the accuracy of our digitising. Sure. Just also wanted to point out that we had high interrater reliability for our digitizing with our MRI scans. But in terms of ultrasound, we haven't actually measured that at this stage in terms of comparing. But down the track, we are in our next source of research that we are doing, we are looking at including ultrasound as well. I did note your interrater reliability and I thought it was excellent. So you're obviously a well-practiced team and that's very important when you're looking for these relatively small changes. So then I guess if we could move on to the actual changes in muscle volumes and I suppose even prior to that, it's going to be very important to know that the botulinum toxin was injected in fact exactly into the target muscle. So perhaps you could just talk us through the injection protocol in a little more detail. Having selected the muscles, how were the injections guided into the target muscle? The clinicians at Princess Margaret Hospital utilize 2D ultrasound to guide the injections, and they've been doing this for over five years now. So it made them very easy to ensure that they were actually, in fact, injecting the gastrocnemius muscle rather than soleus muscles. So from reports, has really improved the accuracy. Yes. 
uh, I think that's again another important plank that uh, really holds the whole study together. So moving on to the volume changes, the moment generation in the animal models were really disturbing and your changes are really quite different and if you, could you just summarize those volume changes again perhaps in the in the gastroxoleus to start with all 15 children in our study had botox into the gastrocnemius muscle so the overall muscle group when we looked at the volume of the combination of the soleus the lateral and the medial gastrocnemius had no total change in the muscle volume when we looked into the individual muscles, so here we combined the medial and the lateral gastrocnemius muscle volume, and this showed a significant decrease in muscle volume of almost 4.5%. This obviously is nowhere near the report we've seen from the animal models where we've seen up to 50% or 32%, and even in the healthy adult muscles of 14 or 20%. This is much smaller than what we're seeing in these reports. What we found, though, was with the increase of the soleus muscle, it was almost 4%. So this seemed to counterbalance it, so that probably contributed to the overall no change in the overall muscle group volume. Well, as a surgeon, I have to say that this is the particular finding that intrigued me greatly because in many older children, we attempt to do selective lengthening of gastrocnemius because it seems to be important to do that in improving gait biomechanics and we're very keen to preserve soleus and it's really to me a fascinating finding that a selective injection of the gastrocnemius could medically achieve what I thought was probably only achievable surgically. Given that the hypertrophy in soleus making up for the atrophy in gastrocnemius has occurred by about five weeks post-injection. Do you think that's mediated directly by a muscle response, a neurological response? What are your thoughts on that? I wish that we could have known more about this at the time and looked into each of these sort of mechanisms, but we can really only speculate at this stage. They could have been a neural effect of the Botox as the mechanism itself. In terms of the hypertrophy, well, this could be any kind of response. It could have been that we were biomechanically improving the position of when the children were walking and this is what was facilitating hypertrophy in the soleus muscle. Um, it could also be the fact that we might be increasing the amount of physiological loading on the soleus muscle as well. So. It's really hard to really pinpoint what was the reasoning yes. behind, but it was quite a nice surprise what we found. Well, I absolutely agree. Now, the other sharp contrast to the animal work is that several of the animal models, when injected, suffered atrophy mainly in the injected muscle, but in neighboring muscles and also in contralateral limb muscles, whereas you found, at least in some patients, hypertrophy in muscles such as the quadriceps. Have you any comments on that? I think, again, it's extremely interesting. Again, we do have to sort of speculate here because it was quite interesting what we were seeing in the, in the antagonist muscle and, and further up the leg with the quadriceps and the hamstring muscle. We can really only speculate again that it's possibly a result of, look, 
there might be some weakness in the gastrocnemius, for example, and so the soleus has picked up the load and then further up the leg, the quadriceps may have also, and the hamstrings may also be picking up the load. Um, and also it comes back to that, are we biomechanically improving their position so that, that the quadriceps and the hamstrings are, are taking over a little bit more here? I guess that the difference in the animal model might also be that many of the animals, I think, were reported to have much decreased cage activity, whereas you used the tug test, which I think, again, was an, another strength of your study, and your children did not show any reduction in the speed of walking and perhaps a slight increase in the distance walked. Is that correct? Yes, it was really quite minor changes in our functional test with the timed up and go and the, and the six-minute walk test. And yeah. from this, we really feel that there was no negative responses. So I guess that if perhaps if quadriceps were showing some signs of hypertrophy, perhaps some of the extensor load, the need to maintain an extensor moment for the child throughout the lower limbs was being transferred proximally. Um, I wonder if clinically you noted any signs of children sinking into increasing crouch and would that be something to look for with gait kinematics in the future? We also did capture 3D motion analysis at the same time point as well. Uh -huh. So this is something that perhaps we could look into a little bit further because we have analysed this data but at different time points in comparison. I don't feel that they did go into any crouch though from, from what I'm thinking back and looking at the over the data. I don't remember seeing them dramatically going into any crouch post photo yes. but this is something that we could look into further. Well, I want to say again that I congratulate you and your team. I think it's a really interesting study. I think it provides reassurance that the contradiction between the relatively beneficial effects that most clinicians see in the use of this agent versus the animal study seems to be resolving in the favor that it continues to be safe and, and not producing dramatic reductions. I'm very interested to know what your team is currently doing and where you think you might go with this research in the future. Well, there was a couple of factors within this study that really sparked more interest and more questions for us, I think, as any research does. And one of the main sort of daring things out to us was that we assessed these children after they'd already had two series of Botox prior to this um, study. So we know that there's probably their first response to Botox is probably likely to be much larger than what we measured. That's just yeah. hypothetically. So we are looking into it much further now to see um, the first response to Botox injections. So any child who comes through who has never been injected with Botox now, we are putting them through MRI scans to look through before and after their first injection of Botox and then hopefully looking at much longer term responses to the Botox over time and over extra series of Botox as well. We also are looking at muscle biopsies and 3D ultrasound as well. Well, I think that's very exciting and I encourage you to keep your team together and keep working. We'll, we'll be very interested to hear the future directions of your work. Very well done. Thank you very much. We've now come to the end of our podcast. 
Many thanks indeed to Dr. Sean Williams and Professor Kerr Graham for an insightful and fascinating discussion with obvious clinical implications. I hope everyone else listening will, like me, find it both useful and reassuring and an informative extension of the important topics covered in the article. And just to remind our listeners, the article is Muscle Volume Alterations in Spastic Muscles Immediately Following Botulinum Toxin Type A Treatment in Children with Cerebral Palsy. It's by Williams et al. in the September 2013 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.